0: Welcome to the 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast, a retrospective.
1: Hey folks and welcome back to our review of uh wait a minute. DJ, what's the name of this book? Name of this book is Blood and Smoke, the
0: Strix Chronicles. But actually, it's really Vampire the Requiem, second edition.
1: Huh. Well, all right. Um not like I'm sad to see a second edition game coming out, but uh what uh what's what's going on with this? Why is it uh, Why is it like two different things? Or is it really well, just it, second edition now?
0: Well, interestingly enough, there should be some background that we should actually speak about regarding the book in general, right? Uh, it has mm-hmm. been some time since we were taking a look at the greatest library that we had regarding Requiem. Um, and some time had passed in which the material did end up getting updated. And as we started seeing, especially from our previous podcast, that there has been an evolution of where you know vampire the requiem first edition had kind of evolved into something a little bit more we always had an idea that Mm -hmm. there was like this i this thing that it made it too much of an analog with masquerade in certain cases but we started getting more into toolboxy kind of the exploration of different ways of reviewing vampires or seeing them or playing them as we started getting towards the end of it blood and smoke ended up becoming i guess the book that was put out that as the unofficial the unofficial second edition before it actually did become the official second edition. Right. Because it was just giving you another way to present itself as Requiem. Um, but people loved it so much that it just ended up becoming the second edition itself. It made just enough tweaks to be able to start it, but I, that's just a preview folks as we get into it.
1: Yeah. Cause it had, it had some like big things or, uh, well, big mechanical changes. Right. But overall in like tonal and feel, it feels like really just like a setting expansion at first. Um, with that, though, like... Wait, hold that thought, but- because I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh-huh. Blood and Smoke wasn't the only thing that was
0: brought into it. It also had, like, a small little, like, epitaph kind of written into it. It was Blood and
1: Smoke, the... Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's a good thing. I totally forgot. It was called the Strix Chronicle, right? And I think all the other second edition lines, when they started doing this, they they added, like, those those epitaphs to it. Like, I think uh, Werewolf the Forsaken was the... um. Uh, Itagum Chronicle uh, right. when Hunter got its second ed edition thing coming out, it was uh, the Slasher Chronicle. So right, right, they are right. are Strix like the focus of the Blood and Smoke, and therefore second edition? You know, I'd like to think that the way
0: that it was kind of written originally, and the reason why we're bringing it up in this fashion is because Blood and Smoke, when it was first introduced to me, was like it's a story, right? It's one of those things that as you start telling the story, um, the story system. Mm -hmm. you you kind of view it as its own independent thing, but I guess it now becomes much like a chapter. It's trying to tell its own story, right? Outside of the fact that, of course, you're looking at it from a, once again, a toolboxy type of view, or if you didn't know what direction to take Vampire, this at least gives you the backdrop and a feel of the theme of what's happening in the background. I like it because when we were originally talking about Strix, and for those of you who aren't familiar with Strix, we've seen them show up the first time around in Requiem for Rome. And we've had them peppered in at certain points throughout the um, the length of first edition. But now it seems like they're right. front and center and they're becoming a focus on it. So it seems that by adding that to the title, um, the Strix Chronicle, so to speak, that we know what's kind of coming up ahead with at least the antagonist we think we might be facing. Question mark. Mm-hmm.
1: And with that though they don't they don't drop like the seven and Belial's brood and all the other uh you know the immortal sinners that we've covered thus far right It's like um I feel like their 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 idea with this when they came out like you said, the streaks were in. Uh, Requiem for Rome right but th- we never got like an in-depth look at what a Strix was what are they about why are they there they were an antagonist for that and then you know we all read the same clan books that came out um, there were Strix in the background of there if not you know writing people's faces at times I feel like a large part of this was almost almost taking those books we, we read before like the Belial's Brood and the Seven but making chronicles around it You see what I mean by that?
0: Right. No, I completely agree with that. Um, Because there are a couple of changes with, you know, Blood and Smoker at this point moving forward. um, Vampire the Mask, rather Vampire the Requiem, once again, second edition. Uh I almost Uh, flipped up there, folks. (laughs) Right. But there's a reason behind it as well. And I think we should kind of get into some of the differences because of this. So to kind of preface this, folks, this is definitely going to be a review of a core book right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this isn't kind of like the previous books that we've done, which have kind of been like setting materials or source books of sorts. This is pretty much a source book, rather the core book that we've kind of reviewed to a certain degree before, but with some major changes. And what we want to do is really kind of go over where those differences start to come in and where we feel, especially Brendan and myself, having made a healthy amount of use in the second edition book, um, where we find those, those changes from first to second become very impactful. So starting off with the first thing I definitely want to say is, Why I almost slipped up with Masquerade was because when we talk about the first edition Requiem book and when we're talking about its first iteration and how nascent it was, many people were looking for analogs to the favorite clans that they used to play and Mm -hmm. the disciplines that would come or the way that the clans were originally shaped. And we see that in this version of our book, in this version of of, uh, Requiem, it splits off. It makes it a little bit more distinct than it was previously before. You know, I guess to kind of bring into it, we could even just start talking about the clans or what the clans are different like. First edition Requiem, when they introduced it to us, they gave you an idea of what the clan should have been or where they were coming from. And we had many clan books as well that kind of supported a background story to it. Um, But we, we had hints of it before because in every clan book that we've read, there's always been like one or two divergent origin stories. This core book does it a little bit differently because what it does is as it starts to introduce our clans, our clans actually have a bevy of question marks that are attached to them. In fact, Mm -hmm. prior to so, we have a section that asks you what is a vampire and what is true versus false, right? And in the book, it tells you what is true versus false, but it lets you know that not all of these things are true and or false, right? So one good clan, like, um, how about this? Brennan, do you have a clan that you're particularly interested in that you felt some of the background stories that I gave you for, like origin stories, kind of tickled your pickle?
1: Yeah, uh, I'll I'll go with the the ventru, not just for like the the little uh, origins that they throw out in their sections, but also like well, like their journey from first edition to this one, all those changes in hell, even the changes between now and masquerade, right? Like, um, it's not. Like, if you just look at some of the the first one that's listed there, they're they're referencing that they were the their origins where they were the children that were swallowed by Kronos and weren't spit back out. Uh. Right. That they're literal descendants of gods. But then there are others that they're more um, they're offshoots of gangrel or cousins of them that developed more like, um, alpha predator behavior. And even then after that, there's, you know, origins from, um, the, the Julii that we've talked to death about <laughs> thus far. Right. right. And like, I feel, what I got with each one of these origins is while they might be very different they all give different perspectives on like the the venture different aspects of it right you have like the the, uh, almost egotistical like uh, aloof lords you have the ones that rule through like domination and the others that are more like um, uh, honor bound conquerors right like the almost like the Julii were kind of presented as
0: Mm hmm And that kind of adds to the the way that the game plays out as well, because there's no one set of origin. And what it's trying to let you know is that vampires can come from many things. And we've spoken about it as well, regarding our bloodlines and how easy it is for the blood to kind of permutate in certain locations. But also that truth isn't, truth is kind of hard to tell, especially with the fog of ages, right? Um, Whether or not something exists. One of them, especially how it's brought up is what are your clan origins? Uh, One that I liked was the devas, right? So two examples to kind of give you an idea and a flavor they say, as the goddess of war, murdered her handmaiden Lilith, who was called mm. stranger and scorned the serpents of Eden. Dinana gr- regret. She ransomed Lilith ha- back from the owls of the underworld. Yet there were those who say the trade was a trick. In a Platonian slumber, the progeny of Lilith can hear the screech owls keep. We are owed, we are coming. Another one says that there was a dancing plague. In which it swept throughout Europe for centuries, and documentation was to start with one dancer before everyone just started continuing dancing and dancing and dancing until they all continue to start to fall over, you know. And in this process, um, these spirits that kind of survived and had continued forward will also had spawned the Deva. And it's not to say that one versus the other is kind of false, but you do at least get a flavor for what the clan should be kind of bringing you, right? Mm-hmm. It's that, but. So
1: With all these origins, I get the idea. It's like, you know, none of these are actually true, but they've got like different meanings inside of it that are true. I think that's uh, the direction they were going for. I also always hated that. (laughs) Because sometimes you just want a damn answer. But uh, I don't know. I don't think um, I've enjoyed Requiem more than enough without those solid answers. I think sometimes maybe as much as I want them, it's not ever really needed. Um, Speaking of solid answers, DJ... Um, in these clans that we've already kind of talked about, did you get a big, like, did you see a big difference between them in this second edition now versus how they were presented in the first edition? To be honest, I don't.
0: I think what has changed is the foundation level has changed. Now, hear me out on this. We'll use Ventru and Deva as an example, right? There's a couple Mm -hmm. of things that... um, So, for example, the older system had kind of preyed upon the fact that it uses Virtue and Vice to kind of work as analogs for, like, um, nature and demeanor for what we know as Masquerade. Mm -hmm. Right? And Virtue and Vice was something that was... Especially Vice was something that was big for the Deva. Now, the Deva are kind of a little bit different with it, but the way that they have their clan curse is also different and we'll get into it just a little bit regarding like that other aspect the changes but the devas clan bane as they call it now happens to be that they can't really afford to feed from more than one person continuously otherwise they start kind of becoming codependent on them to the point where it's mm-hmm. are almost obsessive and it wasn't that we've seen it before because we definitely have especially that deva clan book that was written totally espouses the obsession that one may or may not have upon such a creature but You see it amplified here. Now, when I mean that on the ground level, it had changed. Remember how we were talking about, like, what is truth about a vampire versus what is not? We've kind of substituted a couple things. We know that the predator, like, for example, these kindred, these canines, these these vampires can now tell each other apart easier without having to suffer worrying about the predator's taint, Mm -hmm. which we knew was something in the beginning when that was was introduced to us. We're like, oh, man, this is cool. But in practice, mechanically, (laughs) having to roll consistently for it kind of became a little bit harder to deal with. If if I can pause you over. right
1: there on that topic, because I want to go into that a lot. When I first well oh, sorry, I started in second edition Requiem, right? That is the first right. tabletop RPG I ever played. So when I went back to look at the first edition core book, I was like, oh, this Predator Taint thing, it's not it's not there. I wonder why they got rid of it. This seems awesome. Then I think uh, I was talking to someone. I think it was actually Bob and he was like, Yeah, I mean it's kind of cool, but Really, when you put the application to it, it's more like just uh, a dick measuring contest. And I was like, oh, no. Because, yeah, after that, I tried to incorporate it, right? And it was like, oh, it was constant. I was like, oh, all right. Now this makes sense as to why it's gone.
0: (laughs) No, right. But, I mean, those are happy changes that we've gotten. But, like I said, just um, knowing how vampires are being presented now is cooler. Like, one of the other differences. First edition put a lot more effort into... First edition, especially the first core book, brought a lot more effort into, like, as you create your own vampire, your will is what brings them into existence, right? You have to put that power, your yes. power, in order to create a full-blooded um, progeny of sorts, a children that you'd be able to go ahead and raise. But as we started reading in one of the later editions of the book that they brought over in this one was they started speaking about Revenants mm-hmm. being the half made right? What if you accidentally kill someone while feeding? What if you just had a sloppy feeding in general? What if you, for whatever reason, malintent? And I guess this kind of runs synonymous with it to have like will behind it, or maybe neglect, had created another type of vampire. And this is like a problem, right? Because you should be mindful of the ones that you create. You don't want these creatures that are running around without a clan, without without anyone to kind of help them go through this process. But now they're included in this book. How did you feel about that? Because that was that was another one of the bigger changes as well.
1: So that uh, I thought I thought the revenants or maybe I was thinking of the the larvae. Do you remember what I do? You know what I'm talking right. about when I'm talking about mm-hmm. larvae? There yep. was another night horrors book uh, and those can get a little tricky to track down because they're not always vampire specific. Right. It's like they might be of some bent, but they can work in any of them. Um, but I. um they're they're kind of like a weird thing that didn't make sense to me at first. Right. And almost like a distraction. They're like a half vampire. Well, you mean like a damn Pierre? I was like, no, they're full vampires. It's just they're like uh, lesser. But it took me a while to really well, not really a while. I had to stop and think about it. And it's what you just said. There's that aspect of will that's been like, even though there's been a lot of changes in second edition, that's like a cornerstone of the game is that the, the like will of the vampires will shape or is what keeps them going. And when there's not that intention there, when there's not that, that focus, things fall apart from it. Um, and I, it's still something I have like a little bit of trouble, uh, tackling, uh, I don't think I've actually ever used Revenants uh, in the in the game, but maybe it's because I've never fully wrapped my head around them. Like beyond you know, just me, the surface of them.
0: Well, I mean, here's a good example, right? When we're looking at the movie Near Dark. Have, have you seen a movie Near Dark?
1: Yes, yes, absolutely.
0: Right. So we have a person who I've been and he's halfway through the process, but he's not one thing or another. You leave him alone long enough, he'll probably find his way and or become something. But as of now, he's still a nuisance right before he fully converts and or becomes something else that's kind of how i kind of review the revenant at first glance especially if you're running a story like that how many times must your sheriff go ahead and clean up after this vampire who just keeps leaving these like half bastards out on the street Mm -hmm. right do you bring them into the fold do you not is it better to bring them in does someone even want to put the investment in there because they do talk about having to invest in them right and it still holds true this is like shadows of the first edition where you if you want to sponsor a vampire and make them of your own, you must go ahead and give of yourself and as well invest that willpower to say, yes, I will bring you to this bloodline. But not everyone wants to do it because it's like, why? Why do I want that around my head?
1: Uh-huh. And I think that's a that's a big thing that they tried to to set in, like just with the embrace in general, right? That's why that act of will is required for the embrace. It's that if you're making another vampire, well, that's more competition. It's more danger inherently. Uh, You need to be real sure about what you're doing before you just introduce another one. Um, True. And I think what you just said there kind of piece, a a bit of the Revenant puzzle for me. It's not just because I was just looking at the Revenant as the Revenant by itself. Right. But if you introduce Uh a Revenant in a a scenario in a campaign, well, they're a problem most likely because of how often they have to feed uh, because usually they're ignorant. But they could also be uh, the potential uh, for anyone in the in the game, you know, bringing them up, like you were saying. The um, I don't know what they called it, the uplifting. Um, you know what I'm talking about, right? Um, For for listeners, in case you've not been reading the books like we have, these revenant things can be, um, while they might be clanless, someone that is of a clan, full vampire, we'll say, grown-up one, can bring them into their clan like um, you would to another bloodline.
0: Correct. Now, another question to that is, did you also spot something that's different with the vampires this time around in terms of just them existing and how they run?
1: In terms of how they exist and how they run, um, I'm not sure what you're what you're talking about. That I've picked up a couple, um, like how the the ventru seem very different. But are you talking about vampires, like in general? In general, because we're still on the fundamentals here. No, I'm not. I'm not. Anchors.
0: This is the first time we start seeing anchors being starting to get introduced into a system um they did not exist before and obviously we start seeing where they're now quote-unquote touchstones in v5 but this Mm -hmm. is where we actually start seeing anchors taking place within a a vampire game right because these are the things that you found dear a person a place or a thing that helped ground you in your humanity and helped you grow and i think this is a good player aid and something that wasn't there before and we kind of had the idea from stories that did exist within the clans so for example um the Mecca character and being obsessed with like specific younger women that she knew that she was envying but at the same time not, right? And or uh read in her journals um from the um if I can remember the Gangrel book. Um or even the journal of the Ventru, you know, the guy uh-huh. who was going through the, the person who was archiving the archivist, as we were saying, all that information. Um but it could also tie to once again a person, place or thing. But I thought that was also interesting because that also helped shape what we'll see in the clans. And I'll speak about that in a second, but go ahead, Brent.
1: Yeah. I, I, it didn't even occur to me, like as we've been reading through all these things, like touchstone is just like a basic thing for me with Requiem. It, I never, I never realized its absence from first edition until this discussion. Mm-hmm. Like when you said that, I was like, what are you talking about? Anchors are back there. And I typed up like, no, they're not in first edition. Um, It's also worth kind of noting uh, maybe I'm being a little pedantic here. The anchors also have the, uh, well, what they replaced with Virtue and Vice, right? You have Mask and Dirge. Um, right. But those make much, much more sense to me than uh, Virtue or Vice ever did. Or even Nature and Demeanor, honestly. Because if you have this, if the Masquerade is a core tenet of this game, well, what mask do you wear? Who do you pretend to be? And when you're not wearing that mask, who actually are you? Um, So
0: explain that a little bit more for our audience, because to kind of give you some background for those of you who haven't read through first edition is they did have something like virtue and vice, which was mm -hmm. cool because it kind of went through the whole dirge feeling, or even then it still used like those types of imagery like where you're through a requiem. And then it's like the virtue is what you aspire to be versus the vice of that, which you cannot help yourself by, by being torn by. Right. So those are two different elements there where you're trying to kind of uphold this image of yourself versus struggling against the things that draw you away. But as you mentioned, this is different because what is the mask versus the dirge this time around? Like what governs the vampire?
1: And I guess to govern that, right? um, Well, it gets kind of weird because I'm now thinking about this just from a mechanical standpoint. You got those anchors that ground them. But is that what what uh, governs them? Would you say it's like their covenant or would it be like their aspiration? Is that what you're talking about?
0: No, no, no. More still on the mask and dirge. Because think about this, right? We're talking about Masquerade. We were looking at a, a nature and demeanor, which you present mm-hmm. yourself as to a certain degree versus like what you're supposed to be. And then we played around with the fact that in first edition, we had once again, virtual advice. Something that your vampire is striving towards to keep a semblance of himself or their selves, I should say, versus the things that are kind of pulling them away um, in the form of vice, things that they can't help but kind of indulge into, right? We mm-hmm. see that espoused, especially with the Deva in the first edition. However, Mask and Dirge specifically to play to the theme, how do you view that as for a Vampire? Because you touched upon it when you were describing them in the first place.
1: Um, yeah, uh, the um, well, the Mask and Dirge, the mask is like the lie. It's what you're pretending to be, right? If you're going out to like, a warehouse at 2 a.m. doing weird vampire things. Your mask is the reason you give to like the, the cabbie that's dropping, that's dropping you off in the area, like why you're coming there. Right. But your, your dirge is your role in uh, the dance macabre, in the all night society, like they're calling it now, um, which is kind of, uh, I guess appropriate. Cause I think a dirge is like, you know, it's a funeral dirge. It's like a morning song, a song or music played at a funeral. Um, to just uh, really guide you in what your character does or to guide that kindred in what they're doing now that they're an undead monster. Right.
0: And I think that's the the biggest tonal change that we've seen is instead of trying to fight against what you are to a certain degree, it's coming to grips that you already are a specific Mm -hmm. thing. Right. So like that, I thought that um, that kind of helps because now it gives you more an idea that you are playing that monster. Whereas before it was like, okay, I'm kind of struggling and you still are because you have humanity as a scale. They still use the humanity scale to kind of talk about vampires in general and the echoes of that with what you remember. And once again, as you were mentioning, the anchors that put you in place to help you keep, you know, grounded it doesn't change the fact that you still are a monster and that there are certain things that as the monster you must appease, especially if you're appeasing your beast and or you're letting your hair down amongst your peers whenever you're around them. Um, there are things that kind of correlate with it, mechanically speaking, and I guess we could touch upon that um, more. It still kind of affects your willpower, you know, being able to act accordingly um, to either your mask or George does reward you with the ability to to liberate yourself, to, to feel at comfort, to... Be able to have that mental fortitude and gain some willpower back, so that does exist. But I just, I just wanted to put that down there because that gives you an idea where the vampires will be coming from. But mm-hmm. also, this will give you more um, gravitas as we speak about the plans, the, the rather the clans. My apologies, you know, clans within plans and plans within clans. But as you were saying, <laughs> it's uh, turtles Adventure, all the way down. Right, right, right. Venture, <laughs> Brennan. Tell me what's what did you feel was different and or significant about the venture this time around.
1: The, the biggest thing with the Ventru is that in, uh, in first edition, um, while they still have that lordly aspect to them, right, um, The one of the defining things about all these clans is what their weaknesses are, and the weakness of the Ventrue in second edition is uh, completely different than it was in first edition, at least in my mind. Like in first edition, Ventru were more uh, likely to, say, gain derangements, and the whole idea of derangements in... Uh, uh, Chronicles of Darkness, World of Darkness has been a somewhat controversial thing, anyway. And it seems in Second Edition they did away with it completely. Um, now instead, um, they have a different weakness that I, I actually adore in the Venture, and it's one of the reasons why I, they're one of my favorite clans. And it's that they're they're aloof, and they're so focused on their on what they are and. That mentality of being like a noble, a lord of the night, that they are more, not necessarily distant from what keeps them grounded from, well, more distant from their humanity, but much less attentive to it. They don't see that detail as it would be to them because they're so focused on like the big picture or because they're focusing on what's immediately in front of them to attain their goals. And because of that, they're more likely to lose their touchstone.
0: Right. Because power corrupts eventually, and we've heard it before, and as they start removing themselves from the picture, start recognizing that particular goal, it becomes harder for them to focus on anything else. Right. Um, I'll take one. I'll, I'll go back to where we talked about the Deva, right? So in first edition Deva, we knew that using virtue and vice as kind of our guiding principle here, that Deva were more likely to go into their vice. But... Now going into second edition and talking about what our vampires feel and how they currently are, once again, revisiting things like the Jurg, the mask, as well as the fact that they know that they're monsters. And even using what we've learned from the clan book Deva um, when it was back in first edition, it's not that they succumb to vice as much as it is that there's an obsessive nature in them that they just can't give up. And especially when they fawn over a specific type of prey, the first edition once again had them more inclined to revisit their vices to a certain degree, but this edition starts looking at them from the perspective of saying, If I feed on one, I can't get away from it. Right mm-hmm. there, we'll talk about some of the mechanics in more detail at one point, but I think just to kind of touch the broad stroke, they, if they were to feed off of a mortal, um. They start kind of feeling some type of way about them, and they want to go ahead and revisit them. If they start to feed from the same vessel again, they will become more obsessive and codependent on it to the point where they might just destroy what they have in front of them because they just can't be without it. And so there lies of the danger where you at least want to keep your pool of steady folks around because you don't want to stay on one object for too long lest you destroy it.
1: Mm-hmm. And that really hammers home the uh, the well codependent aspect that they have in that right I, um i particularly liked the davis weakness because it felt like their power of majesty you know that uh, emotional manipulation is mm-hmm. also turned back against them if they're around someone for too long this is true um but going with that um are there any other uh we we covered like the a good chunk of like general uh, vampireness in second edition and we hit a couple of the clans. Uh, I don't want to hit everyone because I want some pe- I want some fun stuff for people listening. <laughs> but um is there anything else you wanted to mo- you wanted to talk about in like those differences between first ed and second ed?
0: There are some differences as well that gets brought up that gets acknowledged that um... Because we know that things can or can't exist within the world of uh, the Chronicles of Darkness at this point, as it will soon to be called, they do at least um, talk about certain lost clans that did or did not exist. They Mm -hmm. give, like, lip service to the fact that the Ark could exist, which at one point or another um, may have been related to the Seven. Uh, They Mm -hmm. do talk about the Julii as well, and they also talk about another uh, bloodline, which is the Pijavica. Peshavka? My apologies for slaughtering the name, but those three are at least brought into effect, at least let you know that at one point they may or may not have been clans, may or may not reside as bloodlines, but it lets you know that these things kind of do come into effect. Once again, because the Julia will be important for purposes of the Strix, the because when we get to Covenants, the Seven is kind of briefly mentioned. Mm-hmm. But I mean, for purposes of clans? No, I mean, it pretty much covers everything there.
1: All right. Um... Do you want to go over any changes with covenants? I um I think by and large those are very similar, um, to first edition, unless you disagree completely.
0: Oh mon frère, I do. All right, all right let's is, get into how, it. We'll start with your we'll start with your eyes first, right? Because you came in from second to first, and I came in from first to second. Like how? What did you view as in terms of any differences, if at all, from what you've noticed between both?
1: Um. The Invictus in the second edition part have um, start to show a a bigger difference. Because if you go back to like first edition writings and uh, uh, most of the Invictus book, it has a very, you know, noble and courtly atmosphere to it. But when you start reading about it in second edition, well, it's kind of has a, a young buck feeling to it uh, certainly courts and oaths are still a large part of it but when you start reading like their write-up and you start reading about like the one or two sample uh, city structures they have in the book it's more corporate than court
0: right there's also another aspect um, that we didn't notice remember how I said in the first edition book in the first query was doors like analogs to certain things that would give you an idea so carthian movement we have the anarchs in Mm -hmm. this we kind of had the modern day camarilla for masquerade and the way that their you know mechanics kind of represented was if you were part of one of these covenants then they focused a lot more on the fact that you would get discounts for purchasing like resources or retainers or certain pieces of influence and backwards or allies um, to kind of help determine it but To me, after a while, it wasn't until we started getting to the covenant books that we started getting a little bit more definition. But until then, Mm -hmm. it always did feel like it was just shadows of masquerade. They did mention in the second edition book, we'll use the Invictus as an example, as one of the ones that covenants are a lot more personal. Mm -hmm. right? And we always talked about it in the first edition regarding the fact that as you are part of a covenant, the covenant helps you during your dad's macabre to survive through your requiem. and. One of the things about it, though, is that we we usually present it in a bigger, wider scale, like either citywide or like in the scope of maybe you know a continent, which isn't fair to say because obviously we know that Requiem likes to microcosmally look at it smaller. Right. But here it focuses a little bit more. Example: Invictus were also mentioned as being the better keepers of the first tradition, right? Mm-hmm. Of being able to make sure that this masquerade that gets placed up is intact. So much it, so
1: that they get a, they get another little moniker in this, right, that I actually enjoy a lot, the conspiracy of silence.
0: Right. Right, and that's different because now instead of focusing on just the structure of being like, well, we're neo-feudal, we have this, instead they, they are the ones that do keep the silence and because of it they do have a prestige behind it. They have many ways of being able to go about it and mechanically they do focus on the oaths because they all owe that fealty to each other but no longer do you see that it's going to be structured or like forced upon you that your character is just within this this one needle fuel structure of just earn money, grow taller, grow bigger, etc. You could play them in any way, shape you want, so long as you understand what the focus of it is. Right? Mm-hmm. Because this time around if I wanted to create myself an Invictus like Mechet character, or rather Maquette character, I could be like, okay, well, here's my current project. As of right now, I'm running these types of simulations on the herd. No one knows any better. If we proceed with this, no one will know that these crimes that are taking place are actually how we keep our food supply up and going. Oh, good job, DJ. You have done very well of being able to do this. But if it goes out of hand, then you know who's in trouble. Yeah, 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 I know, I know. I'm the one that kind of set this up. But at the same token, no one will ever know. And if something does happen, we have the fail safe. We'll pull the kill switch, everyone has to go to rehab. (laughs) And then it just ends up becoming city (laughs) epidemic and we'll blame it on the next mayor. But these are kind of tactics that we start seeing in second edition that we didn't as clearly see in first, right? Same thing kind of with the Carthians where um, we talk more about Carthian law and how it implements itself because it takes a lot more of a stronger footing this time around. And Carthian law ended up becoming a lot more prominent in their clan, but rather in their covenant books. So we start seeing where pieces and bits of the better parts of things that we've read before start getting implemented this time
1: around. It felt like this was, there was a, a refinement process going from 20, 2004, when the first edition came out to what this came out, 2014, like a month 14. before 2014, right. I think. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Um, but yeah, like going, going through this up to this point, it's been like, uh, it, it's, it's been a blast to see where it's come, uh, what it's come to, uh, because uh, in case you haven't figured it out at this point, DJ. This book is my favorite tabletop RPG. But uh anyway, uh, we talked a lot about the the Invictus. Um was there another thing you wanted to hit before we moved on? The seven. The seven does get brought mm. up here. The seven now, what? The seven do get brought up as a covenant.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, And that's also significant. Why? Because we know that in 1st edition we kind of had them as inserts along with Belial's Brood being kind of like the boogeyman of sorts um, to things that may or may not have existed. This time around they actually do get their own insert in which they do exist. Right, They are part of a covenant. That covenant does exist and it gives you the opportunity as a player to kind of play around with it if that's something that you wanted to kind of be involved in. The only thing it kind of leaves open regarding it is the interpretation of it. But then again that's that's vampire you know the requiem on mass right being able to toolbox your way into it but the 7 does make a strong appearance in it and it does tell you that they too are after their own agenda which is very similar to the first edition so nothing has really changed that much
1: yeah <laughs> the um i mean in first edition they also didn't pin down as what it is it's just three different alternatives this this adds this has the what i've started to call the michael myers aspect to it Right, it's that that air they bring back that air of mystery behind it. The seven is not really written up or presented as like a player thing. It's more of a uh, an ST idea. But this, um, the what page and a half they have written this mm-hmm. really gets uh, every time I read it. It's like, well, I've got like a new idea how to use them.
0: Right. Agreed.
1: Um, and to kind of piggyback on that. They only have like a page and a half on them. Um, when I first went, was going back through this, I was like, well, it's kind of disappointing not to have more as much as we, we did in like the first edition books or even references to them. But then I started thinking more. It's like, well, we have books on them already. Um, right. Doesn't mean they're gone. They can't be used in this. Uh, and I had to actually go back to like the beginning of the book. Like, how do you use it? Did you read that section? It's like two paragraphs, but there was something in it. I missed the first like dozen times I've been reading it. And they were talking about, uh, there's a section in the beginning of the book called how to use this book. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's like that first thing It's like, I know how to use it as a game. Like you just go on, but it had a going back the other day, reading through this, it said something that I had missed or forgotten and makes a hell of a lot more sense. Now this book is about two different kinds of vampires we got the kindred that we play, and these are like the pop culture, the the sexy vampires, the the ones that we're all like more familiar with uh, after Dracula. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's another kind of vampire that's presented in this game that's like the old vampires of folklore, right? It's like the demon possessed corpses, and that's the Strix. That's the Chronicle. Well, it's the, that's why it's the Strix Chronicle, right? Um, and that that made that kind of like clicked it for me as to why like there are references to the seven. I'm pretty sure there's references to Blyle's brew, but why they're not a focus here. They've Mm -hmm. already had their focus. They're not gone. They're still over there, but now we're showing like why we liked the Strix in the beginning when we, when they, well, I say we, when they um, brought them into Requiem for Rome. Agreed. Um, I have to
0: pause for a second, one because I have to think. I, I I fully agree because that's one of the things that kind of did fly over my head the first time around when I did read it, and it was because going from first to second, there were a couple of things that I didn't place that much emphasis on the first time. Once again, I was really young when I read these books, mm-hmm. and then I can really appreciate it. And it was the stricts, um, if only because the who is your boogeyman, right? If the, the boogeyman should be something something more than you that gives you a challenge and these tricks because of how alien their mindset is and we've seen how they react to other things and we hear about these bargains that are being struck that may or may not relate directly to the creation of vampires as we know them you know within this chronicles of darkness that's what kind of makes them scary right um that bestial thing that doesn't need rhyme or reason to do what it does versus you who should have that rhyme and reason to continue to exist. And yet where it tries to thwart you or mess with you, it still stays there. But thinking about it in terms of why it's added in. Yeah. I mean, there is a heavy section in this book as well that does cover it. I guess we could go over that very briefly. Did you find anything new uh, regarding the Strix information that was presented here versus other books that we've gone through?
1: Oh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Because they they blast this wide open. Um, One of the later chapters in this book is the Strix chapter, right? Called the Parliament of Owls. I always like that title for it. Um, Of course, they have your your rogues gallery in there, and they do not pull any punches with the list of of, uh, Strix they have there. Uh, I'm a pretty big fan of uh, Mr. Scratch uh, myself. But more than that, it also goes through as telling you, like, how you can make your own Strix. Um, about this time, they released, they released the God Machine Chronicle, which introduced, like, ephemeral rules. And yeah. these are very similar to that. The, the Strix are definitely separate, uh, but you can see there's, like, a, uh, a blueprint that they've started to follow. Uh, but it lists all the different powers that Strix can have. Um, and that's just me getting the mechanical, boring mechanics out of the way, because more than mm-hmm. that... Um, Along with some of these mechanics, they go into um some pretty at least in my mind controversial things at first um to just jump right into that one uh there are um they have several different kind of powers dj you know they got their doom powers they got their host powers they got their shadow powers. I think it was one of their host powers that was called um uh it's not really important what it's called but basically it was one of their possession ones right because weaker stricks can possess animals and they can possess corpses they then they can possess humans and then vampires but at the the top of that they have a power where they can possess a dead corpse but then they become that vampire right or rather they become a vampire in that corpse and i was like what is is this like a, an actual like starting of that curse? And I don't really even know why I was so surprised because they mention it in Requiem for Rome. But that was the the biggest like, uh, I guess, revelation for the Strix in that like that. Mm-hmm. No, no doubt connection to Kindred.
0: No, I, I agree. Um I know that at one point I could almost hear Bob in the back of my head going like "Strix why?" right <laughs> because it, it, Bob's a big proponent of having some really good villains in there and like mm-hmm. like the Strix are good in their own right and I could also see where they kind of maybe a little bit stale and but the reason why is because it's like what are you the, the storyteller and where your players make up just how big and bad these Strix are because it's almost like saying the Duke. You know, I had to think about how I was going to relate it. For those of you who have seen The Babadook or are familiar with the movie, it's about this this demon that resides, shows up in a pop-up book, looks as this tall-hatted guy with a scruffy, I guess, beard, long coat, long, stretchy limbs, but it's there to terrorize people. But it does exist. And at one point during the movie, they kind of figure out that, without spoiling it too much, there's a way to deal with The Babadook. Um and I kind of feel that the Strix are a little bit that way, that as the player, as you start to recognize what your enemy starts to do, you, un- unless your storyteller pulls, like, the rug from underneath you or starts giving you more of a reason why Strix should be scary, you kind of learn how to deal with the Strix in general. Or I shouldn't say deal. Let me let me clarify that. It's not that you'll deal with them as in you'll win a fight. It's more ideal, like, you'll have to figure out how to work around this demon that's coming after you and or trying to ruin your life in general
1: yeah these these stricks are not something that can ever really be handled like um well one-on-one face-to-face um they're very um they ever dropped into a campaign it's one where you're the players are really gonna have to like think and get really good at dodging and thinking on their feet um but that was my anyway that that was my big like jump into the deep in with Strix. Uh, was there anything else with the Strix that jumped out to you when you were going no, through this? Not so much the Strix because I think with the Strix
0: were pretty much done there at least as I figure because everything that we've kind of read there creation, many of the doom powers, many of the powers that did exist mm-hmm. or things that they have done have already been outlined in previous books and they took the better parts of them and just placed them in this book for purposes of of, uh, of convenience and not having to search through the other books, especially if you've never started through first edition all the way to second edition. So that was nice of them to do, because at least it gives you a basis from where to work off of. Mm-hmm. However, um, on the vampire side, there were a couple changes that I also did see mechanically that did bring up a difference. One of them was the difference between supernatural damage, or rather superficial damage versus aggravated damage. Gone were the old days of bashing uh, lethal and uh aggravated and now we just move into superficial versus um aggravated damage how so what? well it should say in in general the comparison itself because i know in fifth edition they have it that way but in here a lot of the damage that you take is kind of similar what do i mean by that bashing lethal and aggravated do exist in your own right but now we come to recognize that vampire is a lot more
1: resilient <laughs> oh yes 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 okay because yeah. i'm before, sorry i'm tracking we- now go ahead
0: Yeah, yeah. because bladed weapons before used to be like, okay, they count as lethal damage, but to a vampire, not so, Mm. right? To a vampire, no longer do you have to worry about it. You take it as half damage itself Mm -hmm. and or the meaning behind aggravated is that much more important than it used to be. We just don't throw around aggravated damage like it's something. Now it means something in terms of how it's interpreted. For example, feral claws in this game, being the wolf claws that we were used to, could come in many different varieties, and the damage that it does is just straight lethal damage. No longer is it halved. These types of, do you know, they deal that type of damage itself, but it doesn't mm-hmm. cause aggravated damage. I thought that was also an interesting change um, to the system that we had not seen before.
1: It's also kind of uh, important to note that because um, when I jumped into Masquerade, I heard a lot of people complaining about Gango. They can deal ag damage at level two Protean, This is, you know, etc. cetera. Um, they can't. Like you were saying, the gangrel can actually deal lethal. That doesn't get downgraded to other kindred, but that's not until level four. Right. When they get their initial powers, like, yeah, it can give them a boost, but that's still only dealing, uh, like you were saying, bashing to other vampires, but lethal to anything else that's living. Um, Because vampires just shift down lethal. And um, this was... I also had some confusion going from Requiem and Chronicles to like Masquerade and World of Darkness initially, because like you were saying, there's that separation between aggravated damage and everything else that aggravated damage is almost explicitly of a supernatural variety like if you get you don't get aggravated like burns it's if you get a wound that's an aggravated wound you're gonna have like these sickly black veins spreading out from uh from where you were injured or there's gonna be this disgusting pus from an infection that defies all um like doctor diagnosis if you have aggravated damage it's from something that is not normal why the banes of a vampire inflict aggravated damage because it's, well, damaging that curse.
0: Interesting you should also mention that. That's another difference that kind of happened in this time around. We get to speak more about banes, and normally when we speak about banes, we speak about spiritual and things that kind of do exist in the background, but vampires themselves also do have banes. Speaking of, the Mecha, their bane to them, or I should say their curse is they are more likely to receive these supernatural banes that Mm -hmm. do affect them. Like, for example, in first edition, we got to see, okay, you had a shadow creature or you had a shadow twin that was walking around, and or there might be certain things that might affect you a little bit differently outside of, like, sunlight. But what if you weren't able to actually cross that water, right? You can't cross running water, or you need that invitation to walk in. That gets brought into this game as well. And it's not just the Mechid who suffer this, but other vampires as well, am I not wrong? Mm -hmm.
1: No, they they do. Um and it's not like uh they're just more additions like a clan bane, right? It's as a kindred goes on in their in their dance macabre, if you want to call it that, uh they can acquire more of these weaknesses. Like you were saying, can't cross running water, are actually repelled by people that are pure or or faithful, right? To actually hit those old vampire tropes. Um and I, I've, I've always loved those, right? Because I think you can define, I, I mentioned this before, what kind of defines like the clans and vampires is their weaknesses. And when you add those extra banes to it, well, why would a vampire be um, susceptible to that? That adds another dimension to that, that character. Um, as well as also hammers home that they are a blood-sucking monster. Agreed. Agreed.
0: And I think, you know, this leads us to the spot that most people are usually waiting for. What about disciplines, Brennan, right? What is the difference between what we've had before in first edition versus second edition? I know we're not going to go through over everyone, but I guess no. if you could give us a quick overview of what the disciplines feel like now. for And maybe one or two discipline options and or powers that kind of drew your attention as a difference between first and second.
1: Uh, the the biggest one that had a difference was um was animalism. uh by far um it uh, compacted a lot of other powers cuz like you you i think you remember like animalism i I know it was like this in Masquerade. I think it was like this in first edition where it was like the first power allowed you to command animals and the other one was to like call large groups of them. This one just lets you do it out the gate. It's like all right, this is what you're doing, then as we go on, we're going to build up on top of that, right? It it actually feels like a really strong and tall ladder because after that, well, if there's a dead animal there, you can't embrace animals, but you can extend your curse and your power over animals into it oh one of your ghouls died what is death to a vampire you raise it back up it's not embraced it's more of just like an extension of you at this point but this is your another aspect of your power over animals and then from there it starts to really get interesting where um you have more almost direct control over the beasts that are inside other kindred and even then those primal aspects of people too
0: agreed um one of the other ones actually animalism was probably number two on my list number one was probably auspex yeah because auspex had some really interesting changes compared to like other editions that we've seen before not only Mm -hmm. from first edition but also masquerade one of the better ones i guess to kind of bring it up and it's more the description of it and how it plays itself out so like for example level two auspex is known as uh, uncanny perception right and Uh, I'll read out the the splat on it. The vampire focuses on a single victim, peeling back the layers of lies and misdirection to reveal the truth underneath. The beast sniffs out the victim's dark secrets, things that doesn't want anyone else to know. What the vampire does with that information is up to them. Now, how this plays out and the way that it's done is long gone are the auras of colors that give us an Mm -hmm. idea. Instead, what we get is something that's not only player-friendly, but also ST fun. One of the examples that they give is, for example, if you do have enough successes, you could say, okay, well, is this person a Diablerist? And the reply might be something akin to the way that your beast would take it in. The smell of brimstone and clotted blood, thick blood dripping off of the victim's chin. Because that's how your beast is percepting that information, or rather taking a look at it. And I thought that was cool because there's so many ways you could play around with getting that answer without having to wonder whether or not it's an aura surrounding them, not surrounding them. This makes it a little bit more primal.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people are used to thinking of Auspex as, oh, it makes your senses better. You can see better. You can hear better when that's not what it is at all. It is you using the senses of the beast, right? So heightened senses is gone completely. Uh, well, it's not out of the book completely. Uh, Auspex will play a role in like some uh, sense using things like taste of blood it's used in or it can be uh, and acute senses is still around, but that's a, a different merit, not necessarily tied to it. But this, more than that, finding secrets like you were just talking about, which was a beautiful explanation, but it's also finding dangers or in finding food. Uh, the first dot of aspects is probably one of my favorite powers because it makes the most sense out of anything a, a vampire would have. What is the easiest prey in the room? And who is most likely to hurt me in this room? <laughs> that's it. <laughs>
0: And so like you, common sense the discipline? Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah, that's what it is.
0: <laughs> I mean, it's not bad. At least it's a good technical way of being able to maneuver it. And it does kind of work towards a logical conclusion of like, well, it's like a kind sense plus, right? Because it's not only yes. training wheels to getting the next step of the discipline itself. It's just logical to say this is kind of where you start with it. Another one that we also uh, took in, this is my third favorite, is the rework of Obfuscate. So the rework of Obfuscate was pretty interesting because we're used to usually seeing our cloak of shadows or in terms of like unseen passage taking effect at our level two. Um, this time around in second edition, we have face in the crowd. And I love the description for it. the vampire could turn their predatory aura inwards, walking through crowds of people who pay him no heed. As long as he doesn't do anything to obviously draw attention to himself, nobody notices him. He's just one more person on the street, part of city nightlife. People don't shy away from him because of what he's wearing or what he looks like. He's just a fixture in a city as if everything else. So it's cool how they explain it, right? Because Mm -hmm. previously before... When you're looking like unseen passage we've always used it as a like okay well we're kind of just moving through a crowd no one sees me because they just don't choose to see me whereas it's the opposite it gives you like the reason why the beast is like well if i turn myself inward instead of pushing myself outward where it scares people i just put this cloak over myself where i'm just i'm so insignificant that people just won't even care and it's not that you weren't there because you always were there in fact it's not even like it's cloaking anything they just don't care by maybe by, by way of proximity. I'd have to, we could play so many things with it, but I would assume Mm -hmm. like way of proximity, you could be wearing like a a Tyrannosaurus Rex, you know, onesie (laughs) and just continue through the crowd and um, not have to worry about anything because so long as you're walking through it, it effectively acts as that ability to move through, which makes it a little bit more friendly for people who play like Nosferatu and play people um, who have like obviously deformities or look more monstrous than anything else that would normally break the masquerade um it's a nice intro to it because you know well if that does level one what does level two do uh level two is a touch of shadow now instead of also using themselves as a face in a crowd anything they touch could also go missing up to Mm -hmm. including objects and people so brian and i were walking in a crowd and i'm like well brennan has gotta go with me this is a great hunter's tool i could literally pick someone out of a crowd put an arm around them and they go missing as well as i do Uh Obviously, the precautions I have to go take a place because I can't have my victim up and running and and yelling or whatever the case might be. But imagine what more of a story hook it would be to just be able to pluck someone from the crowd and have the opportunity to pull them away without anyone else knowing, which is also terrifying, but also pretty cool for anyone who kind of wields this power itself. Well,
1: it's also... um, uh, It's also kind of important to note that there's a big difference between how or how obfuscate works, right? If you're this big, big creepy Nosferatu or maybe even a very aggressive maquette walking through that city and like you were saying you touch someone to extend that obfuscate around them and there's there is a fight going on or it gets a little bit more bloody you could be feeding from this person and these people in the crowd will just walk around you because even if you attack with someone (laughs) this makes more sense for obfuscate for me obfuscate would break in if there's a reason why someone couldn't possibly ignore you but if i'm sitting here dj's obfuscated and mike hits him in the back of the head with a hammer that's not affecting me how would i know mike's there that's a change they made with this only those that are attacked or directly impacted that breaks this is true It also goes on to add like um, all these powers really hit the idea that you have some disciplines like your physical disciplines, right? Vigor, resilience, celerity. Those are more boosters, right? Because those are going to boost your stats. But these other ones, they feel more like ladders that as you first take your first step on them, you know, with uh, feral whispers or facing the crowd, you get a little you get a little something there. But all right, this is cool. I can see this. And as you go on, there's noticeable changes or really refinement that it feels like every single power actually builds off the ones that came before.
0: Yes. Good examples of this. We won't get too much into it, but majesty and dominate Mm -hmm. now are they, they work to crescendos, right? Because the farther in you go, they will boost the previous power up significantly. So you implement one to then implement the other to implement the other, to get that much more out of the, out of the, uh, the power itself, which I thought was a pretty good idea.
1: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So
0: I think on that end, that kind of covers the vampire aspect of it, but I do want to cover one more thing in the book, and I guess we'll do it a free-for-all for it because there are many things to pick at it, but uh-huh. this book is significant for many reasons. So I'll lay the groundwork as to like, what topic we're kind of moving into this book. This book set such a groundwork for a lot of things because obviously the things that we've been speaking about We have seen, especially for those of us who are V5 players, we see where our touchstones came from in the form of Mm -hmm. anchors. We see where our mask and dirge kind of divert and we start looking at ambitions as well as um, desires that kind of play into it. Because at this point in time, we also get something introduced known as the beat system in terms of how you gain XP and what promotes you to want to play the type of character that you also did build. But this was also one of the first books as well that did introduce certain things such as like conditions, et cetera, et cetera, um, to kind of bring into it. Is there anything regarding this book in general that you feel was like kind of a milestone, if not for purposes of vampire, but in terms of us moving forward from Chronicles of Darkness that you found here? That's worth noting.
1: I um, Other than I felt like this was. This was a refinement of, of everything that it had been published since, you know, late 1991. Uh, they even call it out in the beginning, like thanking everyone that like worked on all of the the crews, like the people that worked on the first edition stuff. They even call out what you and I have been talking about a large chunk of the time, that refinement of Vampire the Requiem that started in Damnation City and Requiem for Rome in the Clan books. Right. And calling out the other people that had been with the company and shepherding these lines from like, early on, like Justin Achille uh, and Will Hindmarch, right? And I felt like this was... This is my favorite vampire book game to play, but it is like that because it took so long to get like the best parts of it and the best inspiration to build it up. So like this, I, I, I've said before, this is my favorite tabletop RPG book or game. And it's not just because it was the first one I was playing. Uh, I, I do believe this took all of the best things uh, from previous editions and previous games and put it into one package to run a kick-ass game with.
0: Agreed. Um, for me, I think the contribution that this book made is not only does it layer upon what Brennan was mentioning in terms of all the great things that we did see from first edition and package it into a way that it brings it to our players moving into second and or not only does it give you the best things to work off of if you've never played first edition before into second edition but this book also does something different that we start seeing moving forward it gives you great tools especially if you're a new storyteller or playing with a new troop how to kind of immerse yourselves in there they are training wheels i'm going to say that like for example conditions that do exist in the book do you have to use them not necessarily what are conditions conditions are set things that do exist um set instances which they do exist most of the time they're hindrances sometimes they're bonuses but so long as you act it out you get rewarded beats which equal experience in the end right for it and it's a good way to kind of get players to recognize that part of the game is that you deal with drama part of the game is that you fall forward And that from that falling forward and you acting it out, you get rewarded because you learn from it. And or it creates a fun time at the table that it presents the story to continue somewhere. Because if we played the obvious perfect story, we'd be playing a video game, and then we'd reset the clock and go back all again, and we'd get upset about it. But this actually breaks the mold in some cases, especially for newer players that were just getting into second edition and were moving forward with Chronicles of Darkness to go, it's all right to fall forward. You get rewarded for it. You do Mm -hmm. these things, you act it out, you get to to gain and grow your character from there. So I thought that was one of the better things as well that I saw kind of paired up with it as well from the up to including everything I've mentioned before.
1: Uh, no, I echo that completely. Uh, that That is a, a good, a great call out. Absolutely. Um, well, the last thing I had written down to talk about is uh, saying that this game is worth, or this book is worth picking up. I, uh, I think i've made that opinion abundantly clear at this point um <laughs> i don't know how you feel about that though dj
0: no you're right i have two copies of this in fact i have two <laughs> copies of the book one is a table copy so the players can go ahead and rummage through it and yes. one is it's like a cold at night and sleep comfortably well knowing that it's not going to get destroyed by my players but i i love the book so much that i was able to pick up two copies of it just to make sure that everyone has fun with it they can rifle through it and it's also my way of introducing people into the game i'll be like hey have you heard of the book good requiem i got second edition for you here i'll load it to you Hand it back when you're done and ready
1: well all right um i think that about wraps it um folks it's been great coming here and uh well talking about this book it is uh near and dear to me in my gaming hobby. That's right folks.
0: Thank you so much for spending this time with us in our journey. Um, now moving forward from here we'll be talking about Requiem Second Edition books and what comes from there. More to come you. from that. Thank you folks. Have a great night. All
1: right. See you everyone. Thank you for listening to our 25 years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast. If you like what you heard and want to support us, please share it with others or leave a review. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.